So please be seated. And ladies and gentlemen, it's also time to thank our worship team and invite them to take their seats for landing as well, as our Sabbath holiday flight is arriving at our final destination on the tropical island of Jamaica in the Caribbean, where on its golden shores of all the sports, games and activities I thought I was bad at, it turns out, after 51 years of abject sporting failure, I have finally discovered the absolute worst. <laughs> this, of course, is limbo, and the official rules are very, very simple. Players take it in turns attempting to pass under the bar by bending backwards so that your back is parallel to the floor, and your face must at all times remain pointing directly upwards. You are eliminated not just for knocking off the bar, but if any part of your body touches the bar, or if any part of your body other than your feet touches the ground. That sounds kind of simple enough, right? But each time you successfully limbo under the pole, the bar gets lower and the game repeats. So limbo is a game that gets harder and harder until eventually everyone fails to make it under the bar. I say eventually. At my awkward height, with damaged hamstrings, osteoarthritic joints, one frozen shoulder, and a very, very long nose, I'm not making excuses, <laughs> but I cannot even get through some doors. And so, genuinely, I could not even get close to limboing under this pole when I tried it, even at this, its highest position, a height that Zoe can essentially just walk straight <laughs> underneath. I tried, but I was shamefully eliminated before the game actually started. Zoe, Sam and Millie did, however, make it under the bar, and over several rounds, the gap became smaller, and smaller and smaller until no one could get under the bar at about here. This is a much more respectable 105 centimetres, just a little bit more than a metre. Now, with practice and perseverance, we could train to get through lower levels. Well, they could. <laughs> but even as our skill and flexibility increases inexorably, the bar just keeps getting lower and lower until ultimately it is impossible to get under the bar. And at the moment, that lowest possible limit, the world record for the lowest limbo is held by Dennis Walston, who in March 1991 successfully limboed under a six-inch high bar. To give people at home a point of reference, that's the exact same height as a regular iPhone, not one of the big ones. So if you're playing limbo, take that out of your pocket. And yet, amazingly, Dennis Walston limboed under without touching either the floor or the bar, which I should probably mention at this point was set on fire. But even Dennis's remarkable feat of flexibility means that having gone under this bar at six inches, the bar was lowered slightly. And for the last 31 years, no one has made it underneath at all. This 
impossible limbo game. This frustrating idea of making something harder and harder until no one can do it reminded me of our Sabbath struggles and our reading this morning. Because too often we mistake the idea of simple Sabbath rest for a complex religious test that we must pass to try to please God. And because we can never be absolutely sure that we're quite good enough, we keep adding rules and rituals until the Sabbath limbo of legalism is impossible. In Exodus 20, in the fourth of the Ten Commandments, Moses records in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. The Sabbath, just literally the day of rest then, is to be remembered and kept holy, a single day each and every week when no work is to be done. But no sooner had Moses put down his chisel than people started asking their religious leaders, well, what exactly counts as work? So the teachers of the law came up with a list of 39 different activities that must be avoided on the Sabbath. The first on the list, for example, being carrying a burden. But then they quickly found that they needed to clarify how big does something have to be to count as a burden. And so, if you remember, just like those pandemic rules where a scotch egg counts as a substantial meal while a packet of crisps doesn't, there is the law of the Talmud which eventually decreed that a burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put upon a wound, water enough to moisten a single eye salve, paper enough to write a customs house notice upon, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet, read enough to make a pen, and so on and on and on and on. And the limbo bar of legalism just kept getting lower and lower and lower until by the time of their time in exile in Babylon, those simple, liberating eight words, on it you shall not do any work, had stretched to 60 volumes of onerous rules, which continue to grow as modern technology requires fresh interpretations. Genuinely, in New Jersey, our refrigerator had a Sabbath mode you could engage so you could still open the fridge door on the Sabbath without that little automatic light coming on, which counts as lighting a fire. In 2009, one orthodox Sabbath observant family in Bournemouth sued their apartment building for effectively locking them in their home on the Sabbath by installing movement sensors in the hallway outside their front door. Now please hear me carefully, I mean absolutely no disrespect. These beliefs are earnest, and these examples are clearly sincere attempts to fully observe the strictest possible interpretations of religious law regarding the Sabbath. And while we might not have thought twice about opening our fridge door, at least not until just now, they represent basically actually the ultimate extrapolation of what many of us do worry, wonder, and feel guilty about. We bump into somebody from the congregation in the co-op after the service, 
and feel furtively ashamed of ourselves and slightly disappointed that our friends are not quite as holy as we had once hoped. But this exhausting and ultimately impossible limbo dance of legalism is not a day of rest. It's not setting people free as God commanded, but rather binding us up in legal knots. And because we were missing out on the life-giving restoration and profound blessing of the simple gift of God's Sabbath rest, in our reading, Jesus does not just heal a woman on the Sabbath, but he also, once and for all, unpicks and unties 60 volumes of red tape in just seven words. In verse 12, Jesus says, Woman, you are set free from your infirmity. If you're paying attention, that's eight words. But the literal Greek is not set free, but specifically, Woman, you are untied from your infirmity. And that word untied, which itself is, by the way, number 11 on the list of prohibited activities, is key to understanding what is going on in this healing, in this encounter with the synagogue leader, and in what will follow for us in restoring our own right relationship with this, our day of rest. Healing was prohibited on the Sabbath, unless a life was in clear and immediate danger. And so, when in the setup for our reading, Luke, a doctor, tells us that this woman has been suffering for 18 years, this is written not to provide a justification for an act of mercy, but rather Luke wants us to know that healing did not fall under that Sabbath exemption. While this woman is suffering greatly, her life is clearly not in danger. So it is seemingly contrary to the law when in verse 12 Jesus declares, woman, you are set free, untied from your infirmity. Amid the controversy that follows, let us not miss the miracle and the woman's response in verse 13. And immediately she straightened up and praised God. 18 years of great suffering has been overcome instantly, as this woman is immediately and miraculously healed. And quite naturally, her first response is to start spontaneously offering thanks and praise and glory to God. But her natural response of joyful worship is not shared by the synagogue leader. Instead, verse 14, indignant. Indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath The synagogue leader said to the people, there are six days for work, so come and be healed on those days, not on the Sabbath. Notice the leader directs this rebuke to Jesus. Sorry, not to Jesus, but to the whole crowd. Yet it was Jesus who approached the woman. It was Jesus who showed mercy, and it was God, actually, who healed and performed the miracle, who ultimately untied her and longs to loosen our bounds as well. So it is Jesus who responds on behalf of both the crowd and all of us. Verse 15, the Lord answered him, you hypocrites, doesn't each of you on the Sabbath untie your ox or donkey from the stall and lead it out to give it water? 
Jesus, in untying and setting this woman free, has indeed carried out a prohibited act. But Jesus reminds the synagogue leader that on the Sabbath, while a donkey could not be untied to go out to work, it could be untied to be taken out, to be fed and watered so that it wouldn't suffer all day of the Sabbath. There was a Sabbath exemption, you see, to prevent the suffering of all living animals. How much more then, Jesus says, does this daughter of Abraham, who despite her suffering and her illness, has faithfully attended the synagogue for 18 years, how much more does she deserve to be untied? The synagogue leader was so intent on maintaining his purity and displaying his piety that he was willing for this woman to continue to suffer. He knew every rule and regulation, but he missed the mercy and the miracle. And he fails to understand the true blessing of real, genuine Sabbath rest. Again, please don't misunderstand. Jesus is not teaching and I am not preaching that we simply ignore the Sabbath. Quite the opposite. Remembering the day of rest is no less a commandment than the other nine. And I hope set free together we can rediscover what a gift, what a life-affirming and enhancing joy and blessing the Sabbath is when we remember it. And I use that word remember quite deliberately because while the other commandments are eight thou shalts and one directed to three people on the gallery, honour thy father and mother, we are always invited to remember the Sabbath. The Hebrew language had no word for history, but instead the word always used is to remember. For when we remember, we're not just reading and recounting someone else's story, but reenacting and reliving it such that we remember it as if it was our own. While history is something dusty and objective that happened to someone else long ago, remembering something makes it a present tense part of our own everyday lives, part of our own story. So it is in this spirit that we are invited in Exodus 20 to remember the Sabbath. Verse 11, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And then, at the end of their journey in the wilderness, at the very edge of the promised land, when these Ten Commandments are repeated again in Deuteronomy 5, they're exactly the same, but the reason given for the Sabbath is different. In verse 15, we are now invited to remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So on the Sabbath, we rest to remember the God who created us and the God who untied us, who saved us, who set us free from slavery to both work and the law. Yet if you thought I was bad at limbo, there is one thing that I am worse at, indeed many of us are worse at, 
and that is doing nothing. Indeed, it is actually precisely because we are so bad at doing nothing that we came up with 60 volumes of onerous rules for the Sabbath to seek to earn God's affection and attention by our actions and perhaps our sacrificial inaction. We have been trained and rewarded to strive and to earn, not simply to receive and to enjoy. We have monetized our time and the world has commercialized our attention. So we live in this world of 24-7 hustle and bustle, bombarded continuously by news and alerts and stimulation and messages and media and marketing and entertainment. And the Sabbath rest has become diluted and our attention is constantly distracted and our priorities have become distorted. So we need more than ever a really simple weekly reminder that we are not defined by what we do, but to stop, to rest, and to remember who we are loved by, who we are saved by, and who we were made for. Doing nothing is not missing out. It is to remember simply that we are missing him. Mark Buchanan wrote, the rest of God, the rest God gladly gives so that we might discover that little part of God that we are missing so much, is not a reward for finishing, is not a bonus for work well done, it's sheer gift. It's a stop work order in the midst of work that's never completed, never polished. Sabbath is not the break we're allotted at the tail end of completing all of our tasks and chores, the fulfillment of our obligations. It's the rest we take in the middle of them, without apology, without guilt, and for no better reason than God invites us to enter into that rest. You see, the good news is that we don't create this Sabbath rest at all by our actions, nor earn its rewards by our obedience or sacrifice. But instead, wherever the Sabbath rest is mentioned in the Bible, it is always written as a gift that we must remember each week to simply enter into. In Hebrews 4, verse 10, for example, we read, for anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their work, just as God did from his. That's our Sabbath in a sentence this morning. Anyone who enters into God's rest, rests from their work, just as God did from his. We enter in because God's rest is not something that we create. It doesn't begin when we initiate it. It doesn't start if we come to deserve it. Sabbath rest is just this continuous rest that we join and become part of God's rest. When we enter into Sabbath rest, we are entering into God's eternal rest in the same way that when we enter into worship, we are singing and joining with the forever worship of our creator, of the angels. In Mark 2, verse 27, Jesus reminded his disciples that Sabbath was made for man not man-made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest, you see, is not made by us at all, but it was made for us. And if I may paraphrase Augustine of Hippo, we were made for God, so our hearts will be restless 
not until we work a little harder or limbo a little lower, but until we find our rest in him. Sabbath rest is a weekly foretaste of heaven today, not a test leading to a potential reward tomorrow. You mercifully don't have to be good at doing anything because you're not required to prove something sacrificial to God. And thankfully, you don't even have to be good at doing nothing because it is God's gift of rest we enter into, not ours that we create. The only requirement is to remember weekly that we are invited simply to enter in. The commandment is to rest full stop. And so, Bob Goff writes, don't be busy doing nothing, but fully stop. Why? Because God can't add beautiful things to our hearts if there's not room for him in our lives. The Sabbath, then, is not some impossible weekly limbo dance of legalism. We must not try to contort and constrict our lives to please God, but it is simply to remember his invitation to rest, to stop, and to spend time with the God who is already pleased with the work that he has fully accomplished in us through Christ. The God who created us in his image. The God who unties us and sets us free. The God who himself rested on the seventh day and invites us now to enter into his rest. Amen.